In a world full of smart devices, shouldn't your printer be smart too? It is with HP+. These printers know when they're running low, so you always get the ink you need delivered right when you need it. Plus, you save up to 50% on ink, so you can print whatever you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Huh, that is pretty smart. Get six months free of instant ink when you choose HP+. Conditions apply. Visit hp.com smart for details. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Brian Lehrer is the best of New York City. When New Yorkers want a fair mayoral debate, we call Brian. Let me me jump in. And and Mr. Mayor, if you have the right approach, why has your rezoning plan resulted in so much opposition in neighborhood after neighborhood where you're trying to... When WNYC needed someone to help us process our own Me Too moment, we called Brian. I've been shocked to find it in our own house. The pressure needs to be on us, guys. As I mentioned earlier... And when Brian got the Peabody Award for broadcast excellence for his daily public affairs show on WNYC, the jury put its finger on exactly what he represents. Real engagement, respectful dialogue, and getting to the truth. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, and Governor Cuomo joins us now to talk about a few things. The grassroots group Make the Road released an anti-Amazon statement. Do you think that's just petty politics? Uh, First, who is Make the Road, Brian? Do you want to characterize it? No, I don't know who they are. You don't know at this point? point. As active as they have been in New York politics for this long, you don't know who Make the Road is? No, so that's my Should you know who Make the Road is? The very thing that makes Brian so good at his job makes him a tricky subject. It's not about him, which is exactly what New Yorkers have craved for over a generation. We are in our 30th year. This is 2019. The world has not ended, but nor has it improved all that month. How's the show changed? Well, the show changes depending on the state of the world. When we started in September 1989, It was this incredibly optimistic moment. The fall of communism was taking place right at that moment. We started in late September 89. By six weeks into our run, the Berlin Wall had fallen and New York City had elected its first black mayor. And there was all this optimism at the local level and at the national and international level. Freedom was breaking out around the world. Democracy was breaking out. What a heady time. Well, let's jump ahead Oh, 30 years. Optimism is just not in right now. But also, you, 89, you say, interesting how New York contradicts the national trend, maybe. Uh, George I becomes president in 88. Dinkins becomes mayor in 89. And so New York sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's interesting how they go contrary to the national trend that way. Right. There are parallels, too, though. Um, you know, when I think about the 1990s, it was the Clinton era and the Giuliani era an aberration in New York that a Republican law and order candidate would be elected mayor. 
but New York is thriving in many ways. The economy is growing. Crime is going down. Um, at the same time, the economy is growing and crime is going down nationally. And the Democrats are saying, look, we have a liberal in the White House and everything's getting better. And the Republicans are saying, look, we have a conservative in City Hall and everything's getting better. Mm -hmm. So sometimes right, it's right. just the larger trends of history and whoever wants to latch onto it politically. You know, you're so measured. You're so careful. Like what pisses you off? Without naming names and getting, you know, stepping outside your role. Is Brian Lehrer sitting there in a bathroom with a bottle of vodka in his hand, throwing a plate of Haagen-Dazs at the TV? There's plenty that pisses me off, and you can probably hear it on the show by the way I frame a question or by a monologue that I'll do, introducing a segment. But at the same time, I want to invite everybody in. So sometimes people have said to me, oh, your show is the opposite of Rush Limbaugh. And it's not because he's conservative and I'm liberal. It's because he makes no secret about the show is about what he thinks. Yeah. There's a joke I've heard him tell that this show isn't about what you think. It's about what I think. Right, right, and right. he says it in this kind of jokey, pompous way. And it's a joke, but it's also true. And that's the commercial radio formula. This isn't just about Rush Limbaugh. For me... I have opinions, I sometimes state my opinions, or I sometimes frame questions in a leading way that suggests an opinion, but the show is not about what I think. So if I'm expressing a point of view, which I'm allowed to do on the show, uh, you know, I'm not a robot and nobody wants me to be a robot, but if I do express an opinion, it's in the context of, okay, this is what I think, now everybody else who agrees or disagrees come on in and let's have a meaningful conversation about it. Wait. That's how it's different from Rush Limbaugh, or you could pick any liberal or conservative or opinionated host. Now, when you mentioned uh, Limbaugh and the reporter asked you, I think it was in 2016, you were talking to The Observer. He asked, you know, why left-wing radio had failed. You, I think you said to him that that failure was a mystery to you. It's still a mystery to me. There are plenty of liberal or progressive people in the country, though there are a smaller percentage than there are conservatives by, you know, the surveys over the years. Um, but I, the way you're asking the question um, feels like you think you know the answer. So sometimes when people say they think they know the answer to that, it's sort of a corporate conspiracy. There's no company because it's not in the interest of corporate America to put liberal media out there. Um, is that where you're going with it? No, no. I mean, I wasn't. Uh, I don't think I had an answer. Uh, my thinking has always been that I've always felt, and this is a pejorative. This is a judgment, at the very least, that the conservatives need their media pre-digested more than liberals do. I don't want to judge all conservatives or all Fox News viewers or the majority of them by saying conservatives need their opinions pre-digested for them. But I will say that it's been a problem for the Democrats relative to the Republicans in the political space where Republicans do digest very simply what they're for. You know, we're for family values, a strong Troops, defense, law enforcement, and a free economy. Democrats struggle with it. Chuck Schumer wrote a book a number of years ago that I don't remember the title of it, but one of his main themes was Democrats have to learn to say what they're for in seven words. And that was 
10, 15 years ago. And I don't think Chuck Schumer himself has figured out how to do that yet. It's a haiku. And the Democrats as a party have not figured out how to do that yet. For whatever reason, they think more in terms of complexity. And um, so it sometimes does not accrue to their benefit. Earlier in your career, you had a TV show for 10 years. I had a weekly public affairs TV show on the old WNYC TV when that existed. Channel 5. That was Channel 31. That's part of the history of WNYC. When it was owned by the city, there was the radio station and there was the television station. And when Rudy Giuliani became mayor and decided he was going to get the city out of the broadcast business because that wasn't a function for city government, fair enough, but it was a threat to public broadcasting in New York City. Um, WNYC is not where, on the radio dial, public radio stations usually are. There's a nonprofit public radio zone below 92 FM. And we have got this technically commercial frequency of 93.9. So Giuliani considered selling all of WNYC into the commercial sector. And ultimately, there were a lot of people who really valued WNYC radio. WNYC TV, eh, maybe not so much who ever heard of it, even though they were doing some good things. And that was sort of the deal that was struck. The city sold Channel 31 for, I think, $250 million. And that helped make it okay to let public radio sort of retain our license. But anyway, that was the old WNYC TV. Did you enjoy that? I do enjoy television, but they're really different. Um, On television, you have to look at the camera. (laughs) And, you know, radio is sort of an open book test. People say, oh, you seem to know so much about the topics that you're talking about. Well, I have notes there in front of me (laughs) for everything. And I refer to things and you can cheat and you can look down and you don't have to make eye contact. So that makes radio a little bit easier. But television is fun. It's nice to be seen. It's nice to be able to play with visuals. You know, they're very different media. Uh, what I liked about it was you can read the person's expressions in their faces, and, you, and they, there's something to be said about that in an interview. How do they behave? The other thing about live radio as opposed to podcasts, people are constantly coming and going. So you have to reset, right? This conversation has to make sense if you tune in at 10 o'clock or if you tune in at 10.08. We have to constantly be thinking, okay, if this person tuned in to this half-hour segment 17 minutes through, we want it to be able to make sense for them, but at the same time, be able to progress for the people who've been there since the beginning. It's just sort of a whole other layer of presentational awareness that you don't have on television and they don't have on podcasts. That's one of the interesting things about podcasts having come in and become such a dominant form in the world. A podcast is like a private space. You go into the podcast, you know, you've chosen to subscribe and download, and you can start it and stop it. Um, And in a way, it's even more intimate than live radio, because it's really just you and the podcast talking right in your ear. Yeah. I think it also podcasts, there's something about portion control. You know, thank God for my producer, because, you know, I would argue, I'd say, let's do the podcast like an hour and a half. And then they'd be like, no, 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 no. Podcasts are like the right size. I've been told that 
one popular podcast, I'm not going to call them out because I may have the story wrong, um, figured out exactly what the average length of a commute is in New York City and set their podcast for that length. So that's targeted. But look at uh, old uh, news radio, 1010 Wins. You give us 22 minutes, minutes, we'll give you the world. You know why? Because the average length of listening is no more than 22 minutes. There you go. They go through the whole cycle and they start over. So if we wanted to do the most commercial show we could possibly do in my format, we would take the lead story of the day and do it three times an hour and three times the next hour for the two-hour show, 20-minute discussions about the one thing that people most want to talk about. Because for us, too, the average length of listening is probably about 20 minutes per person per listening day. Even though for many people, your show's on later in their day, they're out the door by then. I, when I'm not working, I wake up, I take a shower, I have breakfast, whatever, with my kids. But 10 o'clock is right when I might, maybe I'm going to shave and comb my hair. So for Brian Lehrer's research people, figure out how long does it take the average man to shave and style his hair. That's how long like a segment should be. That. And one of the nicest things anybody can say to me is, you made me late for work. You have made me late for work, believe me. Now, um, when the TV show ends, was that your choice? Could you have gone on or you wanted to change? Yeah, I would have gone on at that time if if I could have. You were doing a radio show uh, years ago, in the, I guess in the beginning of your career. Is this in Albany? That's where you, it was a music at the program. beginning of my career. A music program. That's true. And I read that in the 70s you said, I think I'll just open the phone line. Is that true? Well, it was a little more complicated than that. Um, when I was coming up, my real goal was to be an FM rock DJ. They were some of my role models. Dennis Elsis, you were going to be. Dennis Elsis, Vin Skelsa, Pete (laughs) Fornatel. And these people, this is when I was a teenager, were more than what we think of as DJs spinning the hits. They were kind of radio artists. They were playing an eclectic mix of music that you could play on the radio in those days on the FM rock stations when they were new. Musically speaking, yes, it was rooted in rock, but they played jazz, they played folk, they played bluegrass. I remember sitting on the beach one summer during college listening to the old NEWFM, and there was, I think, a Rolling Stone song, and the next thing that came on was Miles Davis yeah. doing an electric track yeah. from his album... <laughs> Bitches brew. And it blew my mind. Yes. And I was like, what is yeah. this? And I'd yeah. never heard anything like that yeah. before. And I was like, I want more of this. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I, I, I said to people, I said, I want to have my own show. And they said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do anything. I want to play old Cheech and Chong clips. And then I'm going to go from like uh, uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer to Rosemary Clooney. Like, who cares? Right. So there was that part of the art to it. There was also the spoken word part of the art to it. Because these... DJs or hosts were telling stories. They were sometimes reading poetry. It very much made an impression on me as a teenager that Roscoe, that particular DJ on the old NEWFM, would sometimes read poetry, as I recall, and they would do political monologues. They would do social commentary in between playing rock records. And of course, they would talk about music and in the context of the times. And I was like, I want to do that. Well, in college, I did a lot of that on the campus radio station at Albany State. I also did news. And 
after college, I got my dream job. There was an FM rock station in Albany that was just starting out, and they were hiring DJs, and I got um, a job like that. And they said, it's a a six-day-a-week job, so, okay, you have your afternoon. You're still in school? No, 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 I graduated. I was out of school. They said, it's a six-day-a-week job, so you have your Monday through Friday show, and you have to come in and pick a weekend shift. And because I was also interested in news and talk and the world, I said, well, can I come in late Sunday night and open the phones? And to my shock, they said yes. And the reason was- Had they been was, doing that before? No. But in those days, you needed public affairs credit with the FCC, with federal government, even if you were a music station. That's all gone now. You don't need it. I probably would never have been able to break into this business under you know contemporary rules. But at that time, even a music station needed some news and some public affairs. And they must have been like, oh, this kid wants to open the phones for midnight to three on Sunday night. What have we got to lose? And we get to check the box that we have our public affairs credit. Well, what happened was... Over time, I realized that I was putting much more mental energy and really time into preparing my three-hour-a-week, middle-of-the-night talk show than my five-hour-a-day, five-day-a-week music show. And I realized this is really who I am. Was that an unconscious wish fulfillment for you? It was conscious wish fulfillment by then. But it was just because I was curious and I like the idea of connection and I like the idea of talking to strangers. But then after a while, I realized this is actually a form of journalism and I feel woefully underqualified to do this. And I went back to school. I actually quit that job and went to grad school for journalism so I could try to do it more seriously. Now, when you say, I like to talk to strangers and that curiosity you have, is there anything in your childhood that signaled that? Did you grow up with your parent? Were you sitting with your dad by the radio? What was the home life like in terms of media? Um, The home life was very average American in terms of media. Uh, You know, we watched Candid camera. (laughs) Definitely candid camera. I mean, my parents were, you know, pretty cultured. They would, I mean, considering that they grew up poor in the South Bronx. um, What'd your dad do? He was an electrical engineer and then a home inspector. All right. And my mother was an elementary school teacher. Um, And you grew up in the city? Grew up in the city, grew up in Queens. And they also, though, took us to theater. They took us to a lot of... um, summer stock, which was the way we could afford seeing Broadway plays. And they had Broadway cast albums. They had classical music at home. Um, and we watched, you know, regular television. Media was was average. But for some reason, I got curious about talking to people not like me. Here's a certain way to look at my progression in media. By getting so much out of those DJs who were also radio artists when I was a teenager and feeling like I was learning a lot about the world by sitting in my bedroom and hearing these people who were more connected to things in the outside world, I was like, I want to do this someday and connect with kids like me also. Then as I got older, I thought, I want to do this and connect to people not like me. When I realized that, that was a revelation. That helped motivate me to want to open up the phones. That helped motivate me to get into journalism. 
there was, you know, maybe a social consciousness in that, realizing that I was growing up in a fairly comfortable, we certainly weren't rich, but I never had to worry where my next meal was coming from, kind of middle-class home. And I was realizing there was a lot going on in the world that wasn't like me, and there was a lot going on that would broaden my perspective on things. And I was curious. I wanted to learn more about the world, and that got me interested in talking to strangers. When you took phone calls back then in the beginning, uh, what kind of people were calling you on a Sunday between 12 midnight and 3 a.m.? Well, it was a combination of, oh, I would say, you know, rock music stoners who were up in the middle of the night. God bless them. I had an outlet because I was inviting them to call in. Also, older people. That was interesting to me because they were certainly not the music audience for that FM rock station, but there were real talk radio listeners who tended to be older people who maybe were retired or insomnia. They wanted some company. Then they wanted some company. Absolutely right. Um, sometimes some of those folks would try to call me off the air later and just sort of strike up a friendship. And that was one of my early lessons in how radio is companionship. Brian Lehrer, the city's companion for more than 30 years. Another wonderful fixture of New York media is Philip Galanis. He's a novelist and attorney who writes the legendary Social Cues advice column in the Sunday New York Times. But advice wasn't the gray lady's original idea. At first, they wanted me to do a column, you know, one of those, you'd know everything about me and my boyfriend and my dog. And it was supposed to be about my life, the life right. of, a, you know, a metropolitan uh, gentleman. Philip in New York. Yeah, going around to the movies and what I saw at the theater. And I thought, people will be so fucking <laughs> bored with that. Lightly. It's like, it's like <laughs> I can see that for three weeks. To hear what advice New Yorkers are really looking for, download my full interview with Philip Galanis at heresthething.org. More Brian Lehrer coming up. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashion's not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Akka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Akka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber, and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at C-A-R-I-U-M-A dot com slash Alec. With how much we rely on our devices, it's easy to forget about the hardware we're born with. Take ears. Like fingerprints, your ears are totally unique. Too bad your earbuds aren't. Unless you've got Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Custom Fit Earbuds. Ultimate Ears Fits offer premium sound and all-day comfort. Their groundbreaking lifeform technology guarantees a perfect fit in only 60 seconds. Just put in the earbuds, connect to the app, and watch as the purple LEDs form the earbuds to your unique shape. 
With 8 hours of continuous playback on a single charge and up to 20 hours with the charging case, Ultimate Ears Fits are the perfect choice for listening to your favorite music and podcast all day long without pain or discomfort. For a limited time, get 15% off above the current offer of your pair of Ultimate Ears Fits True Wireless Earbuds at ue.com slash fits. Just use promo code FITS at checkout. That's 15% off the current offer with promo code FITS at ue.com slash FITS. This is Alec Baldwin. Here's Brian Lehrer on what he calls the paradox of modern New York. The city is cleaner. It is safer. We don't want to go back to the 1970s where you couldn't walk down the street and there was a fiscal crisis. Uh, You know, the city and state's finances have been in fairly good shape in recent years. And obviously crime is down. But at the same time, homelessness is at record levels. All of these spectacular contradictions. And hopefully there's a policy way out of those things. But I think kind of that's the state of New York. To me, New York is dirtier than it's ever been. The homeless thing is a problem again. The housing thing is a problem again. The subway's a mess. Also, this construction thing, they rubber stamp every building. There's scaffolding and and, and, and obstructed driving. If you could wave a wand and solve off the top of your head two or three problems right now, and, and, and this is a fantasy, in the city, what would you address? Well, writ large, it would be affordability. The real estate industry holds incredible power in this city and this state. And look at Mayor de Blasio, who I would say is trying to do something about inequality in the city. If he could wave a wand and say, you can only build affordable housing for the next eight years in New York City and actually get affordable housing built, he would do it. But... There's enough power by the industry that if they don't get a certain amount of return on their investment, they're just going to blow it off. And it takes a certain investment to bring the return that can makes it worth it for developers. It's a big risk. To put their money up. Um, but the city owns land as well. What prevents the city from not taking land they own? And well, designing properties there that can be affordable housing. Well, there was a lot of that in the 1980s. Why when isn't Ed, there more of it? When Ed Koch was mayor, there was so much more abandoned space at that time. It was a lot easier to do. Now there isn't as much. Though there certainly are advocates who say the city should be taking still more of land that they own and turn it into affordable housing. Um, do they need the state's permission to do that? Is it time for the city to be given back more of their authorities, do you believe? In my opinion, yes. Because why do we need people from Geneseo County? (laughs) And and I used to live in Rensselaer. That's why I'm saying it. But it shouldn't be up to them to say what we do here. It shouldn't be uh, up to us to say what they do in Rensselaer, which, by the way, is pronounced Rensselaer. Rensselaer, sorry. It's like Nevada, Nevada. If you work in media, you say Nevada all the time, except when the primaries and caucuses are upon us in the presidential cycle. And then we go back to saying Nevada. Well, it's Rensselaer. One of our guests said the word collegial and supposed to collegial. I was like, yes, that's another acceptable. Collegial is right. I think collegial is right. Now, um, the great Brian Lehrer wakes up in the morning and plugs into media. How? How does your morning media feed begin? My morning media feed begins with Morning Edition, and I'm listening to what we're doing 
locally from our spectacular newsroom, which is the jewel of WNYC, as far as I'm concerned, when real news organizations are going out of business left and right, especially for local news. WNYC in the nonprofit space has wound up being able to grow the newsroom to dozens of people. And we have a bigger reporting staff actually going out and digging and doing investigations than some of the old commercial news operations, either in broadcast or in newspapers. On the way in, I'm reading from various news sources, The Times and The Atlantic and Slade and National Review and The Wall Street Journal, a mix of, you know, liberal and conservative and other and sources that cover different kinds of stories. I'll usually consume a little cable TV audio on an app on the way in, Mm -hmm. you know, I'll give a little listen to what CNN and MSNBC and Fox are doing on their morning shows. That's my consumption in the morning. And it's going to vary from day to day to day, because to some degree, I'm following the thread of the topics that I know we're going to be talking about that day. And that might lead me to any kind of news source. Sometimes my entry point to the media in the morning is Twitter. Just to see. Me too. As a news aggregator, I use Twitter. As a news aggregator, because we at the Brian Lehrer Show follow a whole bunch of journalists and news organizations, and I can see from that what of the zillion news stories that I could find on all the news apps, people are actually talking about. Now, uh, I couldn't think of what the beachhead would be for the Trump question, but whoever the Democrats put forth. What do you think that person needs to do to beat Trump in 2020? What would the Democratic Party need to do to make that happen? I think there's a fine line that that person has to walk. I think there's a real tension within the Democratic Party over the argument that it needs to be someone like Joe Biden who can appeal to those, quote unquote, Obama Trump voters in Pennsylvania and Ohio, et cetera, who Biden could bring back, who maybe some of the others couldn't. On the other hand, so much of the Democratic victory in the House of Representatives in the midterms last year came because of huge turnouts by younger voters. You know, every election cycle, they say, oh, the youth vote is going to rise up and it's going to be different. And often it doesn't happen. It kind of happened last year. Um, And to what degree it happens in 2020 remains to be seen. So there are those two different competing visions of what kind of candidate. There's also something that Trump does that I'm not sure the Democrats, any Democrats, have figured out how to navigate yet. People ask, is Trump a baby? Is he crazy? Or is he a political genius? And I tend to fall on the political genius answer, meaning all this provocation that he does is not from lack of discipline. It's because it's something that he has honed. It's the Steve Bannon theory, too. You know, Bannon says, if somebody on the right does something kind of outrageous— on purpose, it's in part to draw an overreaction from the left. It's like boxing. Right? When Trump went out there in 2016 and said about John McCain, oh, I prefer people who weren't captured. <gasps> oh, my God, this is going to be the end of the campaign. Well, obviously it wasn't. When he said about Megyn Kelly, after she asked him a tough question in a Fox News debate, she's bleeding from the wherever people are. <gasps> but he was actually tapping into something that some people wanted. And these things that a lot of people think are a bug with respect to Trump aren't a bug, they're a feature. 
And the Democrats haven't figured out how to play that yet. Because so often they get lured into tisk tisking a Trump and saying, oh my God, this is outrageous and we're headed toward a racist, sexist, authoritarian country more than before. And it may be true, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily win the election. So obviously they have to talk about policy. They avoided impeachment and investigations and stuff on the stump in 2018. And they talked about health care and other kitchen table issues. And that helped a lot. And I think they let the undertow of objection to Trump's sensibilities, which everybody knows how they feel about already one way or another, play itself out as a factor. So they probably have to do that. On the other hand, and we have this problem in the media, too. You know, why is there so much Trump coverage? It's because there's a tension between not getting sucked in every time he throws out a little bit of bait and ignoring things that are so outrageous that they shouldn't be ignored. There's no right answer. There's only a tension. And so in political terms, for Democrats, they have to figure out how to walk that line. And that's one of the things that's going to determine if somebody can beat Trump in 2020. Well, I think that the way to beat Trump is you just have to point your finger right at his skull. You have to put your finger like an inch from his temple and say, this guy said this and this guy. And just don't back off from the indictment of his behavior. I, when you say, is he a genius? Trump has a talent for something. But I think it would be so easy to beat Trump in 2020. There's a way you, you just have to find those pressures points and just drive him insane because I think he is nuts. The argument against your way of running against Trump, though, is that everybody already knows how they feel about Trump. So if you're taking dead rhetorical aim at him and not letting him off the hook, it could just repolarize everybody into the positions that they're already in and his supporters will get, you know, pumped up from that and his opponents will get pumped up from that. But it doesn't change anything, no matter what happens. Have you noticed this? No matter what happens with respect to the Russia investigation or policies, whatever it is, Trump's popularity remains in a very narrow range, right? It's like 35 to 40 percent. Never goes below, never goes above. Bill Clinton, for example, when he was going through impeachment and everything, people say, oh, it made him more popular, which it did. But his popularity ratings were so changeable. He would be way down. He would be way up. We're in a different kind of moment now where people already are frozen in terms of what they think about Trump. So I'm not sure that making Trump the issue beats Trump because everybody just stays where they are. But I think that uh, I respect what you're saying, but I think that overly simplifies what I'm referring to, which is you have to have people that can excite their side of the aisle and galvanize their side of the aisle with their ideas and their rhetoric, which includes the indictment of Trump, the way that Trump excites. you got to get in there. you got to get dirty with Trump. Somebody once said a liberal is a person who won't take his own side in an <laughs> argument. You said that. Yeah, yeah. Now, my last quick question is, Brian Lehrer runs out the door. It's a sunny day in Manhattan. He's got the time to himself. The guy that was the host of a music show. What's your pleasures? Is it the opera? Is it the symphony? Is it jazz clubs? Is it what does Brian Lehrer do in New York to have some fun? It is, first of all, going running on those streets of New York. I love to run. I don't run long distances, but I try to run about three miles every day. Uh, It's my Zen. Once upon a time, I did a lot of yoga and meditation. Now I run. I once had a conversation with Peter Segal 
on the air, the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, who's really a runner. I'm not a, really a runner. He's really a runner. And he was making a big case about not running with headphones so you could be very present. And so it was Zen for him in that respect. I find for me, if I just go running with nothing, I'm still thinking about work (laughs) and I'm still thinking about the world. So I like to go into my music and run and I'm escaping. So I do that. Um, Theater, art museums, jazz clubs. Restaurants. What what does Brian um, Lehrer like to eat? uh, Ethnic food. um, Is there a thing you crave? One of the ethnic foods I like is Ethiopian food because you can eat it with your hands. They have that wonderful injera bread and you can get vegetables or you can get meat and then you just take that bread and you scoop it up and I love Ethiopian food. I'm going to end with this, which is we paint this picture. Brian Lehrer on the subway with the New York Times, reading the Times on his way to work. He goes running to Zen out in the streets of New York and he loves Ethiopian food. You really are the ultimate New Yorker, Brian Lair. There is no ultimate New Yorker, but thank you, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> ultimate New Yorker, Brian Lehrer broadcasts his ultimate New York talk show, The Brian Lehrer Show, every weekday at 10 a.m. on WNYC. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Oh, this one here. Oh, I'm sorry. That's me here. Here we go. Oh, so maybe this. I'm is... deaf, literally, so I need to have it very loud. <clears throat> okay. Just are you dry? I'm, I'm dry. Do you have allergies? Are we doing what are we doing? What's that? Oh, bring it in. Bring it in. Oh, bring in His Majesty's oh, Recova. I hear you use this. Um, but how can I be sucking on this and be talking at the same time? Ah, uh-huh. maybe that's something I can teach you. <laughs> how to eat a Ricola while you give out the news. That's right. Annie had an earache on a Saturday of all days. So her mom brought her to Minute Clinic at CVS, where you can see a provider, fill a prescription, and grab essentials like pain relief products, all in one visit. Even on evenings and weekends, you can even see us online with telehealth options. For quality, affordable care on your schedule, visit Minute Clinic at CVS. That's healthier made easier. Services vary by location. See MinuteClinic.com for details. Paper Ghosts is a true crime podcast that returns with a new season investigating a tragedy that took place in a small Ohio town where the massive farmhouse of a wealthy family erupted in flames. All four residents died, but not because of the fire. My brother says, Carol, something's up. There is too much blood. Listen to Paper Ghosts on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.